Welcome to the Premium Finance Show. Interviews and insights from industry professionals, helping you use financed insurance to provide tax-free withdrawals and extended estate protection. The Premium Finance Show is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, John McDonough. On today's show, we have Jay Tompkins, a tax partner and leader of Baker Tilly's Private Client Services Group. We have a great discussion on his tax planning practice, specifically the discussion on strategic planning and advanced planning and how that's different from just tax and accounting work. Plus, we go into depth on his belief of the Cool Springs structure and why he's such a big advocate for it. This is a great show. Make sure you listen. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Premium Finance Show with John McDonough. Today's guest is Jay Tompkins. Jay is a tax partner and leader of Baker Tilly's Private Client Services Group in Houston. His expertise ranges from partnership and corporate taxation to gift tax and entity selection strategy. He has an extensive experience helping clients with complex taxation issues, entity selection, and tax strategy. His specific experience is strategic tax planning for various entity designs, experience with varied corporate legal and tax structures and complex business taxation issues, a deep technical experience in tax compliance and various software solutions, tax strategy, partnership, corporate, business, and individual taxation. He's a former vice president of the Woodlands Chamber Board of Directors. In addition to all of that, He also is a managing partner of Woodmark, a commercial millwork company, and his wife owns a boutique fitness facility franchised with F45. Jay, welcome to the show. Appreciate it, John. Glad to be here. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Being a a partner in a huge um, firm as well as owning your own millwork company and your own gym, how did you find the time to do this? (laughs) <laughs> I'll also say there's a lot of good people around me. I definitely don't do it by myself. It comes down to processes and figuring out the, the way to do it. And on top of that, I've got three kids. So it, it's definitely a busy household. And what are your kids' ages? 17, 14 today, and they're going to be 11 in a couple months. Wow. That is a busy household, isn't it? Yes, sir. Cool. Do me this. Tell me a little bit more about your family, if you would. Tell me about your wife and your kids, how long you've been together. And then I'm going to ask you some questions about your hobbies. And then we'll get into your work, how you got there, and then premium finance. So tell me about your family. So three kids, 17, 14, and 11, you said? Yes, Yes, that's correct. uh, So my wife and I, we've actually known each other since second grade. Our mothers are friends. So it was almost arranged, you could say, or that's the joke. (laughs) Uh, but we started dating in high school and I got married in college and we are on year 21, 21 years, uh, a month ago. So congratulations. It's, uh, it's definitely been a ride and everybody asked me, how did you do it? And I said, we changed together. That is the key. In my opinion, you change together because everybody changes, but if you change together, and at least attempt to communicate, then it works. But so, yeah, we've been together a long time, obviously, the, the three kids, and it's getting into the world as the kids get older, into what they're into and 
how involved you are with them. And you become more of a wallet and a chauffeur more than a caretaker at some level. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can, re- I can relate to that. So my wife and I, we met in high school, we're high school sweethearts. And 1995 is when we first started really spending a lot of time together, still in high school at the time. But we just celebrated 17 years in June. So I do agree with you change together, your relationship changes, because obviously who I am today, who you are today is not who they married and vice versa. Especially when you're young, when you're young, right? How you look at like, in fact, my wife will tell you in the beginning, she was more of the dominant one in the relationship. But she would tell you now I'm more of the dominant one in the relationship. So you change together as opposed to, I guess, fighting about it and just deciding to get divorced because it's different. I don't know. I, I can't speak to how that goes since I haven't ever done it. <laughs> but I will say congratulations on making it past of a marriage where most marriages in America fail. You've already made it past that crucial point. And I think, I don't know, it's somewhere in the 12 to 15 year range. So congrats, man. You're in it for the long term now. Yeah, yeah. I'm all for it. It's been great. And and now that she's opened her own business a couple years ago, if anything, it's brought us a little closer because as a business guy and what I do daily as a CPA or through my other venture, we can there's a lot more to talk about it, help with and talk through and it's a small organization of six employees and her partner. And so it's I'm very involved in it enough that I wanna be in a course I do all the accounting. That's my role, but it's been fun from that perspective. And it also made me learn that in all the nights of coming home from work and having discussions, whether you listening most of the time. That's uh, an that interesting, interesting dynamic. Find out, right? You and I have talked about this before. My wife actually and I, we own a CrossFit gym, a CrossFit box, and you own F45 with your wife. And like you, my wife runs the CrossFit box and does an excellent job. And I'm so proud of the work that she's done. But how do you balance husband Lee advice, if that's a word, versus business partner advice? And how do you give her the the freedom to, to do what she wants to do, even though you may not 100% agree with it from the gym's perspective? Yeah. So what I've learned in the last two years, and I haven't gotten perfect at it, not even close, is sometimes you just have to listen. They're, don't try to solve it. Don't give a solution. Just listen. Let the issue fly out and wait for them to ask for your opinion. If you just jump in like I'm used to, because normally in my environment, client comes to me, they're looking for me to solve something. Yeah, you're a fixer. That's right. I'm a fixer and that's my personality. So, but with the marriage part related to this business, she doesn't necessarily want me to fix She just wants me to listen, and she's working it out, or whatever decision they're made. So that's been a learning experience for me, and I'm the one that has to figure that out more often than not. Because again, sometimes just they just want to talk and talk it out, and that's it, and everything's fine. I need to take some notes on that because I don't do a good job of listening when she comes to me. But we'll talk about that. That's another show on another podcast at another time. Um, All right. Right. So when you're not being partner at Baker Tilly, when you're not running your mill working company, when you're not 
running the gym. What do you do for free time? What are your hobbies? What do you like to do? At this point, because not, I'm not saying it's limited, but it's more planned, is my biggest thing is I do endurance, road course, car racing. What is that? So basically, the best way to explain it is think of NASCAR. Okay, everybody pretty much knows what NASCAR is, right? Cars yeah. on a track. Sometimes, if you watch NASCAR, they go in other than just a circle. Left, right, straight, left, right, straight. Eventually, it's a circle, but it's not just an oval. So what I do is road course, which means left, right, straight, left, right, straight. So there's tracks all around the U.S., all around the world, realistically. Uh, F1 or IndyCar is another way to represent better on the road course side of things. But we do it at a way lower level, and we have a five-year-old car that was turned into a race car a long time ago that we maintain and run in an amateur league with a bunch of other mostly amateurs. Sometimes some pros show up. And uh, we go have fun. We don't. We, you win a trophy when you win. You spend a little money doing it. And it's for pride and camaraderie. We've met a lot of good people from all around the country doing it that have become friends over time. And so it's fun. You get to go. I want to go fast, the movie says. So you get to go fast and actually in a very safe environment because you're in a full roll cage fire suit. Everybody's attempting to go the same way at the same time, and nobody's on their phone making phone calls or texting. It's it's a fun environment, and it allows me to do a little bit of work with my hands. We would do some work on the car myself, which I enjoy, and uh, go racing and hang out with my buddies a few weekends a year, essentially, is what it is. How cool is that? So I was expecting the typical, I'm a golfer, I'm, I'm a something else, but no, you like to do endurance road racing. That's crazy, man. Good for you. Yeah. That is different, but you're a different guy, so I would expect nothing less. <laughs> a little different. How I got into it was I actually was into Jeeps and off-roading. And really, the purpose was not the Jeep, so to speak. It was really about being out in the environment, away from the world, and just out having fun. And then I had some Jeep buddies got into this endurance racing, and I started racing with them and then eventually formed my own team. And now I have some guys that are friends of mine that live near me and we keep going. And actually, those Jeep guys got out of it years ago. And we've kept with it and just slowly moved up and gotten faster and gotten better cars and so forth. And it's a, it's a unique environment in the racing world. And what a lot of people don't realize is even at the NASCAR level, those, the things you see on TV, is a lot of those people are paying to drive and be there. It's called funded drivers or sponsored That's drivers. That's awesome. So That's very awesome. few sit here and make a bunch of money being a race car driver and of course a bunch of kids i want to be a race car driver when i grow up guess what it's just like if you want to be a musician or uh, let's say a golfer most of the time you got to do something else before you can or potentially be at a high level yeah that's so true which is what we tell our kids you have a fallback position you got to have something to do just in case your dream mine was soccer and those that know me i was i had a vision of being a professional soccer player but luckily, we had business to fall back on, right? Yeah, that's right. You, or, okay. or do something that affords you the do something that affords you the ability to have that as a solid hobby and have fun doing it, as opposed to the stress of trying to make a living at it. One quick aside on the Jeep story: I have a Jeep. It's got a three and a half inch lift on it. I've got thirty-seven inch tires on it, and I've taken it off-roading once. I actually ran over a curb one time 
And so that's my off-roading experience in my Jeep. I, I'm ashamed to say that I'm off-roader by, only by accident, not by choice. <laughs> oh, that's 90% of the world. If you saw the stuff I've done, I've been to Utah, climbed up mountains essentially, and done some crazy stuff in Jeep. So what it really gets down to is I've got to have an adrenaline rush every once in a while. And that's where this stuff comes from. That's all. That's awesome. Let's talk a little business. So for those listening to the podcast that haven't heard of Baker Tilly, give us the 411 on the size and scope of Baker Tilly. Yeah. So we are the 10th largest firm in the U.S. We're actually, and that's just the U.S. part. We're actually a global company all around the world. But U.S. is 10th largest CPA firm in the U.S. We do a lot more than just the traditional CPA stuff. About 4,500 employees, about 450 partners. Recently, we merged in with a firm in California, which really gave us a true national presence, coast to coast. We do a lot in the Midwest, Northeast. Texas is about 500 people uh, in, in that group. We have three offices here, or actually closer to five. There's two in Houston, two near Dallas, and one in Austin. So we cover Texas really well, and we operate that way. Our Texas is a a singular business unit internally. So we all collaborate with each other. We share staff and resources really well within Texas and nationally. And that's really the benefit of it. So most of what I do every day is a client has a tax situation and 90% of the time I can handle it. But when I can't or they have a, an audit need or some specialist need, I can go to someone in Baker Tilly, whether that's international or domestically, to solve that problem. And that's really nice to have because I control the relationship and can control the message as opposed to making a referral for lots of things. And so I've grown up in a small firm environment, have slowly worked myself up to this point. And it's really nice to have those resources. And it maybe it only happens 10 or 20% of the time during the year. But when a client needs it, they really love it because they can still talk to me or talk through me or I'm part of the situation as opposed to just, I can't help you or you have to pay me to figure it out, which is potentially even worse because that's assuming I figure it out the right way because I don't have the background. That's the issue that I think alliance, a lot of clients face and they're afraid to go to the big firm because either a fee situation, which is not as bad as most people think, or they just think well, I'm too small for a big firm. You're still dealing with a relationship internally. The, the size of the firm is somewhat irrelevant. It's the people and the team that you deal with. So that's what I would tell people to look for in their CPA relationship. Who are you working with? What are they doing for you? And how are they helping you? So you're able to provide you? you're able to provide that small firm feel with the big firm breadth and depth of expertise. Is that right? So if you look at my team, which is about 20 people. Think of us as a small CPA firm of 20 people, private client services. We're really focused on small to mid-sized businesses. Really, it's individuals is what it is. Individuals with stuff. Whether they're an executive, they own real estate, they have investments, or they have a smaller mid-sized business. From a tax perspective, it all flows down to the individual. That's who the relationship is with. So that's how we operate. But let's say that individual decides to get in another partnership or grow their business or they become an organization that needs more support or help outside of the individual outlook. Well, I have partners right here in Houston that can help with that. I can bring them in or nationally or they decide to go sell something internationally or they want to create an entity in 
India or somewhere or something. Or I, I have a recent client that's potentially going to move to France. And they're like, I still have my U.S. filings. I'll have you do that. And I'll get some over there in France. I said, you don't have to do that. I have Baker Chili people there. We can work through them. And he's like, wow, that's, that's awesome. fantastic. So that is really it's cool. It's those sorts of things that it doesn't happen very often. But when it does, I either don't have to, I can maintain a high level relationship with those clients just by having that resource at my fingertips. And that's what's really great about it. And very often there are some larger firms that aren't run very well or that are more segregated than they are integrated. And I would tell you being part of Baker Tilly is it's very integrated and that's what they focus on, which is what makes that whole wheel go around. So your clientele is exactly what my clientele and our clientele at Cool Springs Financial is. Obviously the small and mid-sized privately held family owned businesses. And you're right. It's really ultra high net worth or wealthy individuals that own things. And some of those things are actually businesses or a business that they own or invest in and things like that. I deal with clients all the time that have a CPA that they've been working with for years. And I can tell that CPA is not who they need anymore. And I often think of the statement and I don't know who to give credit to. It's not mine, but I've heard it from somebody what got you to this point is not necessarily what's going to take you to the next point or who got you here is not going to be who gets you there in terms of advice, experience, expertise of your trusted advisors like your CPA firm. So my question is, how do I present you to them without questioning the integrity, experience, knowledge base of their existing incumbent CPA when I can see clear as day that they're not equipped to help get my client to the next level? One way I would suggest is just offering a second opinion, right? So you can put it to, if you uh, needed a surgery, a lot of people go get a second opinion from another doctor. And they may be a doctor they've never met. And the one who suggested or is going to do some procedure has been their doctor for 20 years. Right. Yeah. And they go get a second opinion just to be sure, because yeah. you're relying on one person's opinion and knowledge base. And they may be 100 percent correct and have no issues at all, but it doesn't hurt to check that every once in a while. And many times. The environment is, well, I'm loyal to this guy. He does a good job on my tax returns. And he may, but that's maybe all his capacity is. I don't have a problem being in working with another CPA. I don't have that problem at all. It may just not be their outlook or their knowledge base, or they haven't dealt with something like that before. And so they also have to think about themselves as a business owner or an investor what is best for me? You may like the guy, and that's great. And actually, very often, I have a few CPA relationships here locally in our area who refer to me because they have the ability to say, this is beyond my capacity. You need to go talk to Jay. And there's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, it makes them look better. And potentially, they could maintain some or part of their relationship as opposed to potentially messing something up or underserving the client. And that's the biggest thing. I see most often is there's a lot of really great tax preparers out there and that's what they're really good at, but they're not good at strategy and tax planning and so forth because they don't do it. We're not all just because you're a CPA doesn't mean you're good at everything to do with taxes. It's not possible. 
And I say the same thing about financial advisors, because obviously our specialty is the finance life insurance world. And I say that all the time, just because they're financial advisors doesn't mean that their specialty is finance life insurance. So another thing is the difference between bookkeeping, accounting, and advisory services. Can you explain the differences between those? Yep. So bookkeeping, most of the time, is data entry, right? Recording of transactions. And that's a necessary evil, and there's a lot of people who don't pay attention to that very well either. Accounting is taking those record entries and making sure they're in the right place, and you understand it and are using the reports that it generates to help you make decisions. Strategy is then taking those to the next level and making decisions based on entity choice, how, you, how and where you spend your money, what are you buying, what are you not buying, and going from there. Because And so a lot of people focus on what they have to do only, which is essentially, I got to record keep, I got to put numbers in some sort of system, so that then I can perform or prepare a tax return to because I'm re- required to for you know the IRS filing requirements and pay mm-hmm. my taxes. Although no one ever wants to pay taxes, and I can totally appreciate that because it doesn't feel good. You don't feel like you're getting anything back for your investment in a tax that you're paying. The problem is that there's an outlook problem with that too. If you focus solely on tax reduction. Or deferral, a lot of people think reduction and deferral are the same thing, and they're not. You're either kicking the can down the road, or if you're reducing your taxable income by taking expenses that maybe are on the line, maybe they're business, maybe they're a little bit personal, but it's not super clear, that devalues your business. And so you go to sell it one day, you think it's worth a million dollars, but someone will only give you half a million because it doesn't look that good on paper. Well, you can't have and it's understanding that difference and what are you creating what is your ultimate goal what's the purpose and i would tell you most people focus so much on tax reduction tax is just a percentage and until it's over 50 percent, which there are some states where you can pay over 50 percent when you add state tax but until it's over 50 percent, you're better off paying the tax doesn't mean you should or could or there's not strategies to that make sense to get around it or defer it in a lot of situations. But too often people focus on tax reductions and want to buy things to reduce their tax. That's because they're getting value back. I'm going to go buy a new truck. I got a new truck. It made me feel better because I saved, I got to write it off for tax purposes because I'm a construction company or whatever. But that didn't make any sense. Did you need a new truck? You just spent more money, but you made yourself feel better about it. Right. But that didn't make any actual cash flow sense in creating wealth. That's where people need to get beyond is stop focusing on tax. And the problem is they don't plan for tax. If you plan for tax, paying it is not nearly as dramatic as not planning for it, getting surprised, and then reacting to what's happened and trying to fix it last minute, which most of the time never works. And then they get pissed off at their CPA. Oh, he didn't tell me that I owed all this tax. Did you ever engage with him to determine what that might be? Probably not. It's not his fault because he's your tax preparer. He's not set up to do planning or doesn't remind you or you're not paying him to do that. It's not his fault. He could be a great guy, but I hear that all the time. 
when it comes to what you do on a daily basis, it, I feel like the, and I know you, but the impression that you're giving off is the proactive advising, the strategy, the planning is really what gives you passion and fills you up. Am I picking up on that correctly? Absolutely. Absolutely. Compliance is basically a necessary evil, right? You do the planning, you have the conversations, you talk all year long, just like you would with your financial planner, right? You meet with them monthly or quarterly, depending on your environment in general. You're not doing it once a year, most of the time. So why do you treat your tax situation that way? When taxes is a lot of times the biggest expense that's required from anybody. All the rest of the expenses are chosen, not required. But yet you don't pay as much attention to it. You don't want to pay for it. You don't want to pay for good advice or planning or anything. They, they just want to, I just got to get my tax return done. Yeah. Then that's what you're going to get out of it. But yes, the planning part is what's fun. That's what the solving of problems help. And what happens is it then generates even more, meaning there's more solved problems to solve. There's more of an environment to help with way beyond just the tax returns. And that's where we get into what you do, John. I'm sitting with a client. And they're trying to figure out a way to do something with their money, better themselves, whatever. And the idea can come up, premium finance life insurance. What do you know about it? What do you not? And then I can make the introdu an introduction to you and you guys take it and it's fantastic. It's those sorts of things that if you're not planning and having those conversations, that never happens. You're just filing a tax return once a year. Which is a perfect segue. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. Let's talk about the Cool Springs design and the premium finance life insurance. What, as a CPA, in your professional opinion, why are you intrigued by it? Why do you believe in it? And what about it makes sense to you? So first, it has nothing to do with tax. The saving on tax makes no difference for tax. But that's okay, because that's not the point. The purpose is this. Most people will never want to buy the amount of life insurance that they actuarially qualify for. There's no way. You bet. They're, they're not going to buy a $20 million policy because they don't want to spend the premium dollars to get it, right? It doesn't make sense, or nor do they think they need that much. So there's this gap between what people will want or think they need to buy or are willing to afford and what they qualify for in the life insurance market. So in my opinion, that's an asset, right? The asset that you have is that ability to use that life insurance for cash value, uh, lots of different things. So this is an asset that no one is using. And the reason they're not using it is because they have to pay to use it. What if you didn't have to pay to use it? That's what John does. He has come up with a system that allows you to use your asset to your benefit with a lot lower cost structure in what he does. And, and that's what it simply comes down to. Costs you a little bit of money or a little bit of collateral, which is just your, another asset, for a little while, not very long, so that you can actually have use of this asset you've created based on your income and assets for your family or for your future or however you want to do it, your retirement. It's just future cash flow is what it is. So you're using an asset that you weren't going to use anyway. So why not leverage it? Everybody uses debt and business 
for leverage purposes, this is no different than that. Man, I really love how you explain that. And it's so refreshing coming from a CPA too. It just, we find when we speak with, and this goes to my previous point earlier, they may not have the right CPA or accounting firm or trusted advisors, but when we're talking with business owners, wealthy individuals that own businesses or other assets, and obviously they're a candidate for our structured financing designs, why is it, Jay, for the most part, and I'm speaking in a generalization here, most CPAs try to steer their clients clear away from this type of structure? Why do most CPAs say no to this? Now, the caveat there is I don't think CPAs should be pontificating on being insurance specialists. Like you said, they can address the tax impact, but they don't. They get in this lane and they give clients bad advice. Why do most CPAs say no to this type of design? Because most CPAs derive their value through tax savings. Meaning they are they perceive that they are valuable to the client because they've saved them taxes. This doesn't save any taxes anywhere, ever. Theoretically, you could say it creates tax-free income in the future, which it does. But again, most CPAs focus on saving tax today. Not later, not the future. Even oh, put $5,000 in your IRA because it saves tax today. Maybe that's not a good choice because you're just deferring that tax to a future period. Delaying it. It could be worse. Yep. Yeah, that's the problem. Most CPAs, because they don't form a planning relationship. So their value is solely in preparation of a tax return, creating an environment where the client thinks they are paying the least amount of taxes possible. So their value is derived solely from tax reduction, as opposed to planning understanding the entire picture, being able to communicate it and educate the client on what's actually happening. And then, yeah, contributing to a retirement plan may not be a bad idea, but more often than not, people are over-deferred. They've deferred too much. I just had a client meeting yesterday, of which you saw yesterday. I referred him to you, John. Thank you very much. This client was under-deferred. So part of their planning was, okay, we're going to need to hyper-pump up some retirement plans that you have. You've got basically two businesses worth a bunch of money, and you've got some cash you don't know what to do with. All right, let's do some deferred retirement plans, potentially things like defined benefit or cash balance plans, as well as let's also create tax-free income in the future and use this life insurance asset that you're not using today. But that's what planning is. And that client specifically, I sit there and sit there with their financial advisors. We have a meeting basically once a quarter because he understands planning and having the conversation. It's worth the time and effort because you never know what's coming. I mean, it's so refreshing for me to hear you say this because you're a CPA and obviously you're a strategic planner. But where's the financial advisor in this process? Why isn't the financial advisor coming up with this type of advice for the client? There's another problem as not all it's been changing, but many financial advisors are not advisors at all. They're products salesmen. Mm -hmm. And unless they can make money on what they're doing, it's very hard for them to separate 
value versus compensation. Now, that's been changing over the last handful of years with more and more RIAs and more true advisory and not just commission-based salespeople. But there's a lot of people who are with advisors that aren't advisors at all. They're really just putting you in products, whether that's trading platforms, whether that's big life insurance contracts that are just a contract or variable annuities or long-term care insurance, which are all things that some people need. But again, more often than not, I see that it's used too much. And then the reason it's used too much is because the advisor makes a commission off. That's the problem. And they're not creating a fiduciary duty. And the client doesn't understand what a fiduciary duty is and or who really has it. What side of the table are they sitting on? Mine or yours? And a lot of people just don't know that. It's lack of education is all that it is. Man, it's so refreshing for me to hear you say this because obviously when I try to explain that, what you just explained in different verbiage, but when I try to explain that to a client, obviously I'm going to say that because they think I'm in a competitive scenario with the advisor. But when you say that, it just sounds so credible because it's the truth and you see it from where you sit in at that trusted advisor table with the business owner, with your client, and you can see the deficiency and really not the deficiency, but the motivation of the advisor and what's driving their quote unquote, and I'm using air quotes, the advice that they're giving. That's right. And from a CPA perspective, again, if they're not planners or even if they attempt to be, they're still a little bit focused on how's the client going to pay me for what I'm doing? Whereas I don't take that outlook. I'm a long-term relationship builder. I'm not worried about billable hours. And I know Baker Tilly probably hates for me to say that, but I personally am not worried for about billable hours and what I bill every year. That will come. I'm about making relationships, creating situations that I am truly the trusted advisor to a client and all the other stuff will come, right? Whatever projects or work or what I can do or what internally Baker Tilly can do for a client, that will come. And that's proved true over my 20 years of doing this, right? It's a little bit slower. It's not immediate, but that's not what I'm looking for. That's awesome. And you're such a believer. I hope you're okay with me mentioning this. We didn't talk about this in the pre-call prep, but hopefully well, you're a believer because in your millworking firm, Woodmark, you're structuring a Cool Springs prestige strategy for you and the other partners. Can you speak to that a little bit? We are, right? And, and really what, it, what has really come about is, so I have basically three other partners. One's a, a group of a brother and a, son and a dad. But the purpose behind wanting to do it is two of my partners are really the operators of the company. I'm really the finance managing partner guy. And then we have two key employees that are very key to us. The problem is many employees don't understand, even if we were to give them equity in the company, they don't really understand what that means, right? There's a difference between being an owner and being an employee. And some people are built to be owners. And you need them. And some people aren't. And and you need both, right? You need true employees and you need the ownership mentality as well. So I've come at this as an outlook of, I wanted to create a Cool Springs plan to retain those other two employees on an employment contract so that 
they are provided a retirement benefit 12, 15 years from now. And I know I can explain it to them. That's how I went to with my partner group. And then as partners, some of us will choose to be part of the plan and some won't because they're older. They don't need it. They're already just investors and they're worth lots and lots of money. And this is not part of what they want to do and or use any funds for, which is mm-hmm. fine, right. Mm-hmm. So the purpose for us was it can be really great for a business owner, but it doesn't have to stop there. It can be really great at a low cost to an employer for their key employees. Honestly, better because the cost is so low, but the benefit to the employee is huge. And then if the employee leaves or whatever else, the company can retain the plan. So that's even more benefit for the owner. But it's a huge benefit to the employee and their family, especially when and you want to make sure they're taken care of so they don't have that stress. This is a great way to do it because you're using their life asset to do it, which they would never use. The same concept. So it can be really great in small or large organizations on using it as a, as a call it an executive benefit, but it doesn't even have to be at the executive level. It could be all employees if you wanted to be, but I I doubt that might happen, but who knows? I'm open for it to happen. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are, but likely it probably wouldn't. But even still, if you talk about key managers or vice presidents and up type of thing, and depending on the organization, how it's structured, it, it can be really great for that, especially in a market today that employees are hard to keep and or find. This is something that if you get the right explanation and they're in the right age bracket and understand and can outlook themselves 10 and 15 years from now and go, yeah, that'd be nice to not have to have that stress of, or not having to worry about to save so much for retirement, or what does it really mean? Or what about inflation that's going crazy right now, right? Those are all things that can help supplement that later because we all know social security is useless essentially at this point. Jay, so if I'm a business owner, high net worth individual listening right now, or I'm a controller of a company or VP of finance, whatever the case may be, how big does my company need to be? How big does do, how much money do I need to have personally in order for you to give me that second opinion? where I can talk to you and see if I need to upgrade my accounting tax and advisory services to your firm. What what do I need to do? There is no size requirement, right? Because I did the difference is this, first of all, second opinion is free. I do it for free. That's my business development. So it's going to cost you nothing to just get the second opinion, look at your tax returns, look at your financials and go, here's what I see. Have you thought about this? Have you considered that? Right. Asking those questions and having that conversation takes about an hour to two hours worth of my time versus meeting with you and so forth. Right. It's worth the investment. That's what I mean. I'm building something to me. That's minuscule. Then you decide from there or and I've been given a hard time about this. Take my questions. Go to your CPA. I, I really don't care. Some of them may be able to help you. You just never ask them or never engage them to ask them. That's fine. Or you may realize, why did that never happen? Why did he never even bring it up? He's been looking at my tax return for 10 years. And for example, anybody listening out there that is currently a C-Corp 
and you're a smaller organization, have that conversation. It's it's usually as soon as possible. a bad situation. And, and I'm just surprised that it still exists, to be honest with you. And you ask the question of the owner, why are you a C-Corp? They go, well, that's how we set it up 20, 30, 10, five years ago. It doesn't matter. Okay. Have you ever talked about an S-Corp? Maybe it makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. But most people don't get it. And they haven't had that conversation. Oh, it was whoever, whomever, whether it was an attorney or a CPA, they recommended it. Okay. You should be looking at it every year. Structurally has changed. And especially coming up, tax laws are going to change sooner rather than later. That may change the type of entity or structure you need to be in. It just, it doesn't mean it will, but it could. Who knows what new tax laws the current Congress is going to come up with and enact, likely for January 1st, 2022. Now's the time to start having the conversation. Don't wait till after, because then you're reacting. That's awesome. So how do they get in touch with you, Jay? How do they reach out to you? Basically, everybody has my email and my cell phone number. I'll throw it out there. Give me a call. Send me a text even. I used to not like texting, but I figured out a way to use it in a business environment. But cell phone number 713-857-5983 or send me an email, jay.tompkins, which is T-O-M-P-K-I-N-S at bakertilly.com. So I'll say it a little bit slower for him. So your cell phone, which you're willing to accept text on, is 713-857-5983. And then the email is j.tompkins, there's a T-O-M-P-K-I-N-S, at Baker Tilly, with two L's, dot com. Jay, thank you. J-A-Y. J-A-Y. Jay, thanks for your time, man. I know you're super busy, and I know how valuable your time is. Thank you for doing this, and I will see you soon. Yeah, good talking. Thanks, John. Thanks, Jay. Talk to you. Bye-bye. There we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at premiumfinanceshow.com. And you can find out more about all the ways we can help you at coolspringsfinancial.com. That's it for this episode. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next time.